There we go. Now we're on. I like the Old Testament prophets because there's such raw emotion with them. You know, we see their ups and we see their downs. We see the trials and we get to see the blessings and the miracles in their lives. And as I was saying, when we often read the Bible, we read it so two-dimensionally. We read it like, and then Peter stepped out on the water and he walked. And we don't see or realize that the people are just as human as you are. And that's what the Bible said in James. It was talking about Elijah and it says, and he was human just as you. And so we need to keep that in mind when we read the stories of the Bible. They were just like you. They didn't have it all together. Actually, I would say like 90% of the people of the Bible had their lives exploding on a daily basis with trials and circumstance. God didn't pick only the best ones and say, well, let's talk about them. The only one who was good and perfect and everything he did was Jesus. The rest, man, they were just like a bag of problems. And that's the thing about God is it doesn't matter how screwed up your life is, He can still work together with you and pour out His blessings on you. God has great things for you and the trials you've gone through and the problems you had are not a hindrance to Him. Actually, it qualifies you because you can say, God, I know I didn't do it on my own. It was Your grace and Your love. And so I want to focus on the prophets for the next few weeks because they are just so messed up and God still used them and so last week we were talking about Elijah and when we left Elijah he's gone through all these great miracles God provided for him in circumstances where everybody else was starving and dying he then had God has him challenge the 450 prophets of Baal and God shows up and wins and then he finds himself in the presence of Ahab and Jezebel the evil king and his even more evil wife and she says you know what because of what you've done Elijah I'm gonna kill you by tomorrow and so Elijah Elijah flees in fear and he takes off into the middle of the desert and he finds himself on Mount Sinai, I'm sorry, yeah, Mount Sinai, and uh, he's there by himself and God says this to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever had God say that to you? When you, everything's exploding and you're trying to find a safe place to hide and then God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the reason why God asked Elijah that is because God's intention was to confront Ahab and Jezebel right then and right there. And rather than engaging with God, Elijah has taken off to hide in the desert by himself. And there's oftentimes there'll be situations that arise in our lives and rather than facing them and conquering them with God, we withdraw. And let me tell you this, every time you withdraw, you lose. God didn't call you to step back from the battle. He called you to win it. Because you're not doing it in your strength. You're doing it with Him. And the thing is, whenever God called Israel to go to battle, when He gave them the instructions and He showed up and did the work for Him. You know, I love the, the story about the, Israel was going out to war, and they acquired of God and said, God, what should we do? And he said, gather up your praise and worshipers and send them out first. Now, let's put this in context. Do you send your bugler out first to fight the battle? 
Do you send your drummer boy out there to be the first one on the front lines? No, you send your infantrymen, the ones who are armed with swords and everything, to fight the battle. And God says, you know what? They can sit in the back. All we need is the praise and worshipers. And as they went out into the battle and they praised and worshiped God, the enemy turned on each other and fought the battle against each other. And Israel didn't even have to lift a sword. When you choose to engage and go with God, most of the time you don't even have to stand through the battle. The battle gets won on its own. And so Elijah is on Mount Sinai. Instead of fighting the battle, he's hiding in a cave. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah goes out and stands in the, in, the, in the mouth of the cave and there's a great earthquake and a great windstorm and there's fire and lightning and it says that God was not in any of it. Just because things bang and crash doesn't mean it's God. And it says then God spoke from the still small voice and Elijah immediately recognized. And it says that he took his mantle and he wrapped it around his face. And he shut himself off from everything else that was going on around. And he listened to God's voice. When things are shaken and things are banging, have you shut yourself away with God yet? Because your instructions aren't going to be in the earthquake. Your instructions aren't going to be in the fire. It's not going to be in the lightning or the wind. Your instructions are going to be in the quiet with God. Because he speaks from peace. And he speaks to your inside. So if things are exploding in your life, I've got the solution for you. Go get in your closet and shut up and listen. Simple as that. And so God does a little talking and he says to Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You know, I was watching uh, the new Star Wars movie this week. I like to watch those type of things. Robin suffers through it. But I was, in one part, the villain comes to face Luke Skywalker. And he says, today the Jedi are going to end. And he rambles off a whole bunch of other stuff. And when he's done pontificating, Luke Skywalker says, he says, amazing, everything you just said is untrue. And I see that in Elijah. Elijah says, I've served you God zealously. Actually, Elijah was pretty up and down. He wasn't very consistent. And the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. Actually, no, only a few had. The king and a few other people that followed him. They've torn down your altars. Well, actually, only a few of them, not really all of them. And they've killed every one of your prophets. Well, we already know from last week that Obadiah had saved 100 of them. And I'm the only one left. No, you're not. And sometimes the things that we focus on and the things that we look to as reality couldn't be further from the truth. I'm going under. No, you're not. I can't pay these bills. Yes, you can. My body hurts. God heals bodies. The thing that we focus on can be the very thing that is untrue, but we've been holding it as truth. And so we see that here with Elijah. He has a lot of wrong thoughts that God is not involved in at all. And so God completely ignores his untrue thoughts. And in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God told him, Go back, 
the same way you came. Why? Because you don't win battles by running from them. And so he tells Elijah, get back to where you're supposed to be. And he said, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Well, right now, Ben-Adad is the king of Aram. So obviously, God has some changes in mind. He says, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. Well, who's king of Israel right now? Ahab. So God's got some regime chain going on. And he says, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Mahola, to replace you as my prophet. Now, let's think about the story. Elijah may be the main character of this story, but he was not the one God was trying to save. Israel was. You are Israel in this story, not Elijah. God will move heaven and earth. He will change governments. He will blow the whole landscape up to get blessing to you and get you to turn your heart to him. And so God looks at the situation. He says, Benadad's got to go. Ahab's got to go. And guess what, Elijah? You tried to be a help, but really right now you're being more of a hindrance. Let's get someone new. Bring in Elisha. God has no problem changing everything around you to get the blessing to you if the walls need to fall guess what god will make him fall and then he says to elijah i have reserved seven thousand men in israel whose knees have not bowed to baal and this is why god is removing elijah elijah thinks it's all about him and god's telling him sorry elijah i sent you to save israel not yourself so, Elijah's story basically ends at this point. There's some other things, but they're irrelevant. Chapter 19, verse 19. So, Elijah went and found Elisha. Thank God that he was obedient. And he went and did what God told him. And he was plowing a field, and there were 12 teams of oxen in the field. And Elisha was plowing with the twelfth team. And Elijah went over to him, and he threw his cloak across his shoulders and walked away. Come here, Toph. So Elisha, turn the other way. Elisha's plowing in his team, and here comes Elijah, and he just throws his cloak on him and keeps on walking. Now, if you're thinking that this is just a beautiful orange scarf, you could be mistaken. The thing that Elijah's mantle was, it represented to the people that this is God's power at work in our lives. Elijah would take this mantle and he would smoke the water and the water would split and he would walk across the River Jordan. This was a representation of God's power amongst their lives. And Elijah says, you know what? God's power is now going on you, Elisha. Thanks. And he walks away. And so he's continuing on down the road, and Elisha's kind of like, what's going on? And then he realized what it is he's wearing and who it is that's walking away. And so in verse 20, it says, Elisha left the oxen standing there, and he ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. And Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Think about the implications about what this means. 
And so evidently, Elisha, on his walk back to say goodbye to his mother and father, he thought about what this meant, and he didn't actually make it to the house. Verse 21 says, Oh, so Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. And he used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. And he passed it around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate, and they went, and he went with Elijah as his assistant. So he didn't even make it back to his family. He realized, Oh, my goodness, God has just called me. Everything else is irrelevant. Now, I want to give you a little picture into Elisha. He is not a poor field worker. Having one oxen was a good standing in those days. It meant that it could pull your plow in your field so you could plant and have some grain, have some barley, whatever. Elisha has 12 teams of oxen, which means he has 24 ox. One ox or one team of ox has the ability to plow one acre of land in a day, which means that Elisha had the ability to plow 12 acres of land in one day. You think, what does he get in a week then? What does he get in a month? How many fields is this guy working? Garnet, how many acres is this guy on? A lot. What do you get from lots of acres? Lots of money. He's probably one of the lead agricultural people in his region. He's not poor. But what he recognized was, here, God has placed the call on my life. I don't need any of this. I don't need to tie myself to what has been my provision. I'm going to tie myself to the one who provides. And he doesn't even make it back to Ma and Pa to say goodbye. He says, my goodness, I'm going with God. And so Elisha follows Elijah and becomes his assistant. The entire region is thrown into chaos. A bunch of kings fight, a bunch of kings die, a bunch of new ones come in, they die too. The whole region is being completely thrown around. And then we have the story of Elijah being taken up into heaven on a chariot of fire, and Elisha receives a double portion of the blessing. We're not going to talk about that portion of the series because we actually covered that earlier in the year in Cheating with the Holy Spirit. So if you want to go check out that series, you'll find that story included in there. But what we need to understand, I'm going to do a little teaching this morning, that in the Old Testament, a lot of the stories consist of what we call picture types and shadows of what's about to come in the New Testament and in Jesus. And so you'll see reflections of Jesus throughout all the stories of the Old Testament, and these ones are no different. You know, God said in the Bible that the, what was written down in the Old Testament was written for our learning as an example to us. And so these stories are no different. So, I want to show you this morning that Elijah was actually a type of John the Baptist. All the stories have to do with him turning the nation of Israel from his sins. All the stories have to do with him complaining about how they've walked away from God. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what was also the message of John the Baptist? The one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to, change, to unlatch his sandals for him. So if Elijah is a type of John the Baptist, what does that make Elisha? A type of Jesus. 
And so we'll see all the stories of Elisha have nothing to do with turning the nation of Israel from their sin. Were they still sinning? Yes. But all of the stories of Elisha have to do with him just blessing people around him, helping regular folk, showing grace and mercy to them. Because God did not come on the scene to say, turn from your sins. He came to tell you, I obliterated them. So here's some grace and here's some mercy. And so that's what we find in the stories of Elisha. The very first one, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, says, One of the leaders of the town of Jericho, Elijah has just gone to heaven. Elisha has just got the mantle for good. And this is the first story. They're still in the same location. They said, we have a problem, my Lord. This town is located in pleasant surroundings, but as you can see, the water, or as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. You ever felt that you're in a good place, but you're not really being very productive? So Elisha says to them, bring me, a new bowl with salt in it. And so they brought it to him. What does a new bowl have to do with anything? Well, if Elisha is a type of Jesus, if we think about two weeks ago when we were talking about communion, what did Jesus say? After supper, he took another cup of the wine and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So if Jesus is bringing in a new covenant, Elisha is looking to a new way to do things. So he's saying, I don't want an old bowl. We're bringing in a new covenant here. What else is it? A salt is a preservative. Isn't that what Jesus said about us? That we are the salt and the light of the world? And he says, if a salt loses its flavor, is it not worth anything? It just gets thrown out and trampled underfoot. You realize that you, living out the blessings of God on this earth, becomes an, a preservative and a light to those around you. John, that's awesome that your manager recognized. That's why we know this happens. When people see you blessed and walking in the, pro the blessings of God, it becomes attractive and it pulls them from the death and destruction that they've been associating with and brings them over to new life. And so Elisha asks for a new bowl with salt in it because he's about to preserve this, this uh, town. He's about to bring something new, a new source to them. You know, it's something interesting that Paul said to the Corinthians. says that God has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And this new covenant is not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Now, what is Elijah or Elisha purifying? Water. What is water a type of? The Holy Spirit. So if you want to sum up the situation going on in Jericho, there's been a wrong flow. They've been drawing from things other than God, and Elisha is correcting the source from which they draw their life. And so Elisha says, bring me a new bowl with salt in it. And they brought it to him. And then he went out to the spring that supplied the town with water. And he threw the salt into it. And he said, this is what the Lord says. I have purified this water. It will no longer cause death and infertility. 
I want to tell you this morning that he's purified the water that feeds you as a born-again child of God. It no longer brings death and infertility. It's no longer based on the laws you can keep. It's based upon the new covenant of Jesus and life flows to you today. Hallelujah. You have a new source. That's why John, in John, Jesus said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. When you receive the Holy Spirit, there's a new source of life that comes into your life. And you can speak into those dead things around you and cause them to come to life. Amen. You don't have to put up with lack and less than enough and sickness and pain and discouragement you can speak comfort and life and provision by the spirit that lives on the inside of you he changed the source and it no longer causes death and infertility and it says and the water has remained pure ever since just as elijah said well why did it remain pure forevermore Ever since that point? Well, the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered into the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Which means that the work that Jesus did is unchangeable. He only needed to do it once and it hasn't changed. The only one who changes from day to day is you. He doesn't. So go back to life source. Go back to your redemption and remember what Jesus has done on your behalf because he's wanting to spring forth life from you. Hallelujah. Well, let's look at another story with Elisha. It's a story about the poor widow. And it says, One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha. And before we go on in this story, we have to show you who the group of prophets were that they're talking about. When Elijah was taken up into heaven, they went on a journey before he was taken, and they kept coming to different regions, and the prophets would come out and say, Elisha, do you know that your master's going to be taken from you today? And he kept going, he said, shh, no, I, I understand, don't say anything more. And he goes on, and finally they come to Jericho, where the last story just took place, and there was 50 prophets and they stood at a distance, and they watched Elijah taken up into heaven, the mantle come back down and rest upon Elisha, and Elisha took the mantle, and he went over to the river, and he hit the river just like Elijah did, and the river split, and he walked across on dry land, and the 50 prophets saw. And so we see that in 2 Kings 2.7. It says, 50 men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. And then in verse 15, it says, When the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what had happened, they exclaimed, Elisha's spirit, Elijah's spirit rests upon Elisha. And they went to meet him and they bowed down to the ground. Why is this significant? That there's 50 prophets, maybe more as time went on, that are following with Elisha. I've got to ask you a question. What was Elijah's greatest flaw? Isolation and loneliness. I'm the only one, God. They've killed all your prophets. No, no, Elijah, they haven't. Elijah's... Elijah, whenever things got rough, he went off and pouted by himself. Elisha 
surrounded himself with people that when he's down, they'll pick him up. You know who else did that? Seeing as Elisha is a type of Jesus, who did Jesus surround himself with? Twelve disciples. And beyond that, Jesus, when it was in his time of need, didn't go find an alley to hide in. He took three people with him in his hour of great need so that he wouldn't be alone. What is this saying to us now? Fast forward 5,000 years from Elisha. When you're alone, you're at your most vulnerable. When you're alone, you're listening to your thoughts. And we know from Elijah, they're not always true. When you're alone, you're vulnerable by yourself. You will always be stronger together with other people. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have unbelieving friends. You should have unbelieving friends because how can you be a light if you always hide it under a bush, as Jesus said? But you need to have friends. You need to get together with your church. The Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It says, even more as you see the end approaching. He said, it gets more important, not less important. And so here we see Elijah, or Elisha, rather than separating himself and being alone, he surrounds himself with the very people he knows can sustain him when he's having a bad day when he's in lack he's got other people that can help provide for him and that's so important for us as christians if you can't do it on your own that's okay you weren't called to do it on your own call a brother call a sister and do what the bible says if two or three of you agree as touching anything on this earth it shall be done for you you have no idea the power you are leaving on the table when you choose to face the situation alone he said get together and make the situation change together and so Elisha has solved the biggest flaw that Elijah had and that is he's not doing it alone and so that's why the 50 prophets are important he is not isolating himself Proverbs 18 1 says a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment another translation says only a fool isolates himself I don't see no fools in this place. So one day, the widow of the member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. And so Elisha says, What can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Well, that reminds me of another story. Because Jesus said pretty much the same thing when there was 5,000 men, probably about 10,000 people, needing food. And they said, we don't have enough to feed them. Jesus said, well, how much bread do you have? And he said, go out and find out. And they came back and reported, we have five loaves and two uh, bread and two fish. God is not going to ask you to use something you don't have. When God wants to pour out blessings in your life, he'll first say, well, what do you have? And most people will look at what they have and say, well, I've got nothing, God. You haven't done nothing good for me. One thing we've been really uh, trying to encourage with our kids at night, I say, what, what's something that you're thankful for today? Now, most of the time, it's like my Ninja Turtles. <laughs> but then the other day, Bennett was thankful for his mama. I don't think I told you that one. Yeah. You know, it's... 
It's really easy for us to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have because God can do something with what you do have. That's why when Pastor Robin's talking about seed time and harvest, go ahead and plant something. You know, the boy with the five loaves and two fishes had to first sow it before he could receive back 12 baskets. And so we're looking at what we have is not enough. And God's saying, it may not be enough for this situation, but that seed will produce a harvest that's more than enough. And so Elisha asks the woman, what can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have in the hell, the house? And she says, nothing at all except a flask of olive oil. So her view was, I don't have anything. It's just this little flask of olive oil. What good can it do? And so Elisha says, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. And 99% of Christians today just said, well, that just seems like too much of an inconvenience. Screw that. But sometimes it requires a little bit of obedience and a little bit of work. Do whatever he tells you to do. You know, Jesus' instructions to the disciples were, sit everybody down in groups of 50s and 100. The disciples say, well, this is a pretty big crowd that's going to take a little while. I don't really feel like doing that, Jesus. And sometimes you have to take your feelings and give them a kick in the pants because they aren't worth a heel of beans. And so he says, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. And says, then go into your house and shut the door behind you. Pour the olive, from your fla- olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Your blessings are on the other side of your obedience. She did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. And soon every container was full to the brim. And she said, bring me another jar to one of her sons. And he says, there aren't any more. And the olive oil stopped flowing. You know that she could have asked for more jars? Do you realize that you control the spout of blessing in your life? She could have said, let's go find more. This has been pretty great. Look at all the containers we filled from this one little one. But she said, oh, I guess, I guess we're done. And the oil stopped when she was done. God's blessings are on the other side of your obedience. You want to see some things different in your life? Start doing things that are different than what you've always done. Well, they say that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. You want results? Be obedient to what God has told you to do. And so when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. That's when you're really like, oh, maybe I should have poured a little more if I'm having to live off what's left. But it reminds me of what Paul said about Jesus. He canceled out the record and the charges that were against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. The Amplified says it this way. Having canceled and blotted out and wiped away the handwriting of the note. What is a note? That's what they call about people who have debt. What did the lady have? She had a debt. 
the creditors had come to collect. And it says, having canceled and blotted out and wiped away the handwriting of the note with its legal decrees and demands which was in force and stood against us, hostile to us, this note with its regulations, decrees, and demands, he set aside, he cleared completely out of our way by nailing it to the cross. Why was Elisha concerned about getting this lady's debts paid? Because Jesus was concerned about paying yours. And he took them all to the cross and he nailed it there, clearing it completely out of your way. Which perspective are you looking from? Are you looking at it from I'm looking at the note? Or are you looking at Jesus who's already taken it away? Hallelujah. Whew. God is good. One more story, and then we'll wrap up for the day. In chapter 6, it says, One day, the group of prophets, same group of prophets, he's been consistent throughout his life, came to Elisha and told him, As you can see, the place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River, where there are plenty of logs, and there we can build a new place for us to meet. And he said, All right, go ahead. Now, if you look at the Hebrew language he's talking, he's like, could care less about the situation. Just go do whatever you want. You know, Elijah was not emotionally invested in this building getting built. He was just kind of like, sure, that floats your boat. Go ahead and build a new one. He didn't care. But then it says, then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And so he answered, and I will go. So if we look into the Hebrew here, it's interesting. That word, that then one said, in the word, Hebrew is one word, and it says, the one said. Meaning Elisha had a relationship, a close relationship with one of these other servants. And what he said was able to turn Elisha's thoughts about the whole situation. Do you realize that you are the one in terms of God? And sometimes you feel like God is not very involved in your situation. You as the one, have you gone to him and say, hey God, you want to work on me with this on me? Mm -hmm. That's how God's heart is towards you. You hold a special place in his heart. You're his favored child. And if you want to see God moving more in your life, go and talk to him about it. Because it changed Elisha's whole perspective. Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. Because the one who held his heart asked. You're the one who holds God's heart. And so he went with them. And when they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. But as one of them, again, it's the same word, as the one was cutting a tree, his axe head fell into the river. And he said, oh, sir, it was a borrowed axe. And Elisha was like, well, not my fault, not my axe. And it wasn't yours either. You shouldn't have lost it. No, he didn't. He was the one that had his heart. And so he said, where did it fall? The one had a situation. And the man of God was willing to get right involved with it. Where did it fall? And when showing him the place, Elisha cut down a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. And then the axe head floated to the surface. And he said, grab it. And the man reached out and grabbed it. And the story ends. And it seems like such an such a unusual start and an unusual end. Hey, our building's too small. Let's build another. Come with us. Okay, hey, I lost my axe. It went in the water. I threw a stick in. It floated. End of story. But there's more going on in this story than you realize in the symbolism of it. 
A dislocated axe head is a symbol of manslaughter under the law. It was talked about moral culpability. And in Deuteronomy 19.4 and 6, it talks about a man who was using an axe. And the axe head slipped off and it hit another man and it killed him. That man is now responsible for it. It's all talking about morality. It's talking about the consequences of your actions. And Jesus has taken the consequences of your actions out of the equations with the cross. And how do, we do, how do we know the cross is involved? He took a wooden stick and he threw it in. Wood is a type of the cross. Jesus was, they say, hung on a tree. And so it talks about how under the law there was expectations that had to be placed upon this man. He either had to run or he was stoned. And Jesus said, it's okay, I'll just restore what has been lost and save you from the whole situation. It's as we are submerged and baptized into the water of His Holy Spirit, we are cleansed from the law and all of our moral failings. We are restored to God's original intention to us. And really, this whole story is a reflection of what Paul talks about to the Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that would be a great verse in and of itself. Great. Jesus has took all curses. He became a curse for me. He hung on a tree. But the next verse is just as important. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon you in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so here we see another reflection of Jesus' work. He was going to become the sacrifice so that what you had lost could be restored unto you. That His blessings can be poured out upon you on a daily basis. That the promise of the Spirit is resting with you through your ability to believe what He has said about the whole situation. Glory to God! And the more we look into the life of Elisha, we keep seeing these reflections and these echoes and these shadows of what Jesus was going to do. Why do we see them like that through the Old Testament? Because the one who inspired the writers to write was the one who transcends time and can see what was already going to happen. So he knew what Jesus was going to do and he was trying to prepare the hearts to receive it. Do you know what Jesus is going to do in your life? Because the Holy Spirit is giving you echoes and shadows of what's things to come. He's wanting to show you that Jesus blessed you in the past and He wants to bless you again in the future. That God healed you in the past and He wants to heal you now in the present. He's blessed you in your finances in the past and He's showing you echoes that He wants to do it again because it's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Just because you change doesn't change His moral capabilities. Amen? Amen? So Jesus has bore it all for you. And there's so many other amazing things that we can learn from the prophets throughout the Old Testament. So Father, we thank you for this story of Elisha. We thank you for showing him and working through him as a reflection of what we get to walk in. He was only seeing shadows of your goodness. We get to stand in your goodness on a daily basis. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.
Now, maybe you're watching us via the internet this morning and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. It doesn't have to remain an echo or a shadow in your life. You can receive Jesus today and have a, the fullness of Him come and flood your life to bring His blessing, to bring His provision. And all it takes is one step to say, God, I receive you. So right now, we're all going to pray with you and just open up your heart and receive. Dear God, we thank you for the blessing of Jesus. We thank you for sending him to die for us. We thank you for his sacrifice. And we thank you for what it means for me. I receive you, Jesus, now. In your name we pray. Amen. And it's that simple. If you prayed that prayer this morning with us, go ahead and get in contact with us. We would love to get some resources into your hand and get you hooked up with a good church in your area. Now, you guys, this week you have the choice every day. You can walk in the fullness of those shadows that Elisha got to see. But it's like the poor widow. Are you going to listen to the instructions he gives you? Because the blessings he has for you are on the other side of your obedience. So I encourage you, be obedient. The blessings are always bad, better than the thing you have to sacrifice. So Father, we thank you. We give you all glory in this place. And until we all meet again, we thank you we are blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week. Let's have some coffee and fellowship together.